Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. In this episode, I speak with Maria Hoyos, co-founder and CEO of Go and Save, a fintech focused on income smoothing for gig workers in Southeast Asia. Maria started her career in microfinance in Latin America. She brought her experience to Asia when she pursued her Master's of Science in Innovation at Singapore Management University. We talked about the unique needs of gig workers when it comes to income visibility, how gig work should be regulated, and inclusive finance learnings that span Latin America and Southeast Asia. Go and Save, or Zaver, as its app is known to its customers, allows gig workers to track their flexible earnings and provides personal recommendations to increase those earnings up to 35%. Go and Save was founded in 2021 and recently launched in the Philippines. They're raising their first round of capital. Reach out if you would like to get involved. You can learn more about them by visiting goandsave.co. Maria, thank you so much for being here today. I am thrilled to have you on The Green Room. Thank you so much for inviting me. It is a pleasure to, to be here, to share with you. And yeah, happy to have a great conversation about the work that we do. Looking forward to it, Maria. Thank you so much. I want to start with you and your journey. First things first, I think our audience may be able to tell by your accent that you are Colombiana from Colombia, and you have an incredible background in microfinance and fintech in Latin America. Can you tell us just to start a little bit about growing up in Colombia and where this interest in financial inclusion really came from? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So my accent, I think, is a bit of Latino accent. <laughs> That's completely true. Yeah, I, I am uh, originally from Colombia. I was born in a small city. It's the coffee region of Colombia. So very passionate about uh, about uh, rural areas, uh, coffee, agriculture. That's how I was born. Through that process, I had the chance to see how uh, rural uh, finance uh, was growing, uh, the challenges of uh, the people out there trying to manage their money, uh, deal with poverty. So that really got my attention. Microfinance came in into the landscape uh, yeah, some years ago. It was uh, pretty much famous uh, in Latin America, initially with rural families tackling uh, poverty issues, supporting them to start those businesses, also to have access uh, to some resources to build up their assets. So that was something that really grabbed my attention. That was how I started up my career over there. And then with all the tech boom, right, this mix between finance and technology, especially microfinance and technology, I really started to have this uh, passion about financial inclusion with technology or fintech for inclusion, right, which is uh, sometimes how I call it. And yeah, that's really how I, I kick off this passion and I kick off my career in the in the fintech uh, business. Amazing, amazing, Maria. And it seems that, you know, something that we share is a major, you know, belief that financial inclusion and financial health are really important. And it really needs to happen through the private sector. I think there's a lot of opportunity, I think, as you said, in emerging markets where the ecosystem is like quite nascent for fintech um, and the private sector to really take lead in some of these like broader social issues. I also want to talk about, I mean, more specifically, some of your experiences in Latin America. You've done incredible things, I think, especially at Fundacion Capital and Affluenta, where it actually seems, um, you know, before you became an entrepreneur, you were a bit of an intrapreneur. Can you tell us about those experiences and, you know, what it was like sort of building within kind of broader organizations? Yeah, that's exactly what I became, an entrepreneur. So actually, my first experience in Fundacion Capital was uh, working on a project, which was a crowdfunding platform for small businesses. So we worked on that maybe, yeah, 2020. So we started like, I mean, even uh, fintech was not even a thing. We started this crowdfunding platform trying to find resources from, uh, let's say, wealthy, wealthy people uh the U.S. or like outside of Colombia who wanted to invest in small businesses back in Latin America, initially Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia. And we started with this, uh, this idea. We call it Little Big Money. It was uh, a very nice idea. We really had uh, fun. We managed to have like a, to raise uh, maybe half a million dollars in donations. We had uh, 250 companies there and then like uh, 5,000 donors in the platform. 
it was a, a challenge because we tried to to kick off this initially as an investment platform, but due to regulation, this was very new. We had many many challenges, and I think this is related with what what you are saying with the private sector, but also regulation to see how to understand how we can use the best of the technology, right, and the and the best of the finance to help those to to really need to 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 move on. So yeah, to also answer your question regarding like a, like a, a, the, the process. After that, I decided to join Affluenta, which was a peer to peer. It is a put a peer to peer lending platform in Latin America. I think that was the kind of like my first touch on, on fintech. Very interesting at that point of time because all the regulation was being built. Like Mexican regulation, we had a, a, a pretty nice experience working with Fina Summit uh, as well, uh, team there, expanding to the different countries, working with Alejandro Cosentino, who who is the CEO. So yeah, that was kind of like my my real first experience uh, working with a with a startup, right? Like I was an entrepreneur, but I didn't have the chance to work with a startup, so that was my first startup. And then I went back to Fundación Capital because it was a pretty nice challenge back in Mexico City. I moved to Mexico City. I, I have been moving around on the multiple um, countries back there in Latin America. And the challenge was to create a whole new business unit inside Fundación Capital that was kind of like, a, let's say, like interna- internally profitable, right? Because we were an NGO, so we are not allowed to make profit. But we were trying to, to build up a, a unit that was sustainable itself by serving the projects inside the, the organization. And that was great because uh, we had the chance to like maybe work with 3 million people with different digital projects, a team that started with me, then turned into a 20 team members. Right now, I think it's a big uh, business unit back there. So yeah, and then I moved to Asia and then we can take it from there. Amazing. Uh, yeah, Maria, you've seen like the full fintech ecosystem in Latin America and I think have played like, you know, critical roles in some of these organizations to really get them to engage with with the base of the pyramid in, in a meaningful way. I do want us to turn our attention to Southeast Asia, but really quickly, did I read correctly that you are actually a professor for a couple of universities in Latin America? Uh, <laughs> is that correct? Did you, t- like, what did you teach? And did you have like a favorite teaching moment, like with your students? Yes, yes. So it was very, very interesting because I I think like I am more like a doer instead of a academic person, of course. So like I had the I had the chance to work with two universities, the University of Uruguay, which is a national university, very well rotation over there, and also with the Externado back in Bogota. But yeah, my, my favorite teaching was actually we were doing user-centric design workshops, and we're doing also design thinking workshops, focus on how to help, let's say, like a, or how to create social businesses, actually, like to solve social issues, trying to find a business model behind them. So it was uh, uh, very interesting. I did that for maybe four years, once each semester with different groups. It was like a workshop. And the, the ideas that we got there were amazing. I really remember most of my students in the external, for example, they were like uh, working with the government back there because they were doing a, a program that was like more focused on, on uh, public policy. And it was great to see how these kind of workshops were helping them to think differently, like outside of the box from a governmental perspective. So I think that was very interesting. Most of them like wrote to me back, like, thank you, Maria. I'm using this with my team, blah, blah, blah. It was very interesting. And a couple of financial initiatives like uh, came uh, out uh, from it. It was pretty interesting. <laughs> thank you so much for asking. Yeah, no, that's, it sounds like a, a really fun and, again, sort of aligned way of, of kind of pushing forward, I think, your personal mission, which is, again, around like having how can the private sector be instrumental in solving some of these like big social problems. So sounds like, you know, it's exactly exactly your niche. But Maria, let's let's talk about Southeast Asia now. Uh, you, you know, have had all of this great experience in Latin America, but actually uh, decided to move to Singapore a few years ago. I think it must have been 2019 or 2020. 2020, you joined Singapore Management University, SMU, to pursue your master's of science in innovation. Tell us a little bit about, you know, why you wanted to pursue this degree, why in Singapore, and I think a little bit about the degree itself. Master's of science in innovation is, sounds something like 
like really cool. I feel like when I was doing my master's, like I hadn't even heard of something like that. So can you tell us a bit about a little bit about your journey to Singapore via your master's program? Yes. Yes. So, well, the, the, one of the big reasons why we decided to move from Latin America to Southeast Asia was because we like from a, coming from a Western culture, right? Uh, like I'm more from Latin America. You have a lot of influence from Europe, uh, US, right? So it's kind of like, a, in my opinion, it's half of the story, right? So you, you got half of the story. And with my husband, we were like, uh, what is happening in the other side of the world, right? Like uh, we, should, we, should, we should try to, you know, learn more from different cultures. This is something very common uh, back in Latin America. But I think it also happens here. Like if, if we ask someone uh, from, uh, from Latin America, I mean, like not everyone, they're very well-educated people as well, but... Usually the impression that we have is that Asia is Chinese, right? It's kind of like this, this impression that, ah, oh, yeah, the Chinese, the Chinos, right? So after coming here, I had the pleasure of learning of the multiple cultures, seeing that Asia is super diverse, finding, you know, like uh, different cultures, languages, and learning a lot from the other the, the other half of the world, right? Because uh, if you just take India, right, and and China is kind of like one 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 uh, two thirds of the population, I guess, uh, some, something around that. So so it has been a a great experience, and that's basically why why we moved the masters in innovation. So this program really caught my attention because it was a program designed like for two type of students or professionals, right? The ones who wants to start their own business, right? Or the ones who wants to be a change makers inside an organization or corporation, right? So through those, uh, the four like uh, terms, four to five terms, I guess, like the process was like, like the, the, the lectures that were related with kind of like how you ideate, right? How you create a business model, how you escalate a model, how you validate things. So it was kind of like building a business itself. And the capstone project, which is something that I really took uh, uh, advantage of, was actually starting a business. So I started Gonsafe over there. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also, yeah, yeah, it was, I, I was like finishing the <laughs> the classes and at the same time trying to find a client uh, with work. I don't know how. And then uh, uh, I applied to the um, Innovation Institute of Entrepreneurship back at SMU and they gave us uh, 10,000 10, Singapore dollars, which is pretty useful to to start. Amazing. It, it sounds like a really fascinating master's program. It, it teaches you like a unique set of skills, like how to innovate. Like I think everybody is chasing that that question, especially here in startup land. And the fact that there is now like a master's course dedicated to it, of course, in Singapore. I think that's like that's like pretty cool. And I guess, Maria, did you intend to like stay in Southeast Asia after you finished your master's program? Did you ever think about starting Go and Save, but for for Latin America, or was it always like Southeast Asia? <laughs> so okay, so before, so I always wanted to start my own business. <laughs> so I think like we as an entrepreneurs, right, or entrepreneurs, like we all always have this kind of like a inside call that is saying to us, we have to do it, we have to do it, right? And 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 sometimes you get bored about doing this for others, right, and not finding your own purpose. So I always wanted to to do it. I was just trying to find the right moment, which I think it was a mistake, honestly, <laughs> because there is no right moment, right? True. <laughs> I think I could I could uh, I could have done it before. It's just like about having the courage of doing it, right? Like, and and I think like uh, the 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 masters uh, and moving to Asia and uh, resigning to like maybe ten years with Fundacion Capital was kind of like super helpful, right? Like changed the environment and all of that. But yeah, I, I, I definitely, we, we are still kind of like uh, in our plans to have gone safe in Latin America. I think like, uh, I mean, first we need to do it here in, in Southeast Asia and some of the biggest countries. But I think like, uh, and, and this is something probably that we are going to talk uh, about later, but the, the similarities between the two markets, the two markets, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion, I uh, are pretty high. And more when it comes about the future of work, uh, gig economy, financial services, because I mean, we, we, we both have uh, many, you know, developing countries in, in, in both, uh, in both uh, let's say, sides of, of, of the world. And, and also like the, the, I think like the population and the economies are kind of like similar, right? Um, in terms of like the potential. Yeah. 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 I do want to dig into that later, but I think to give everybody some context, we should actually dig into go and save first 
So we all understand exactly what it is and how it can be can apply to emerging markets all over the globe. So Maria, thank you so much for sharing your story. Let us dig into Go and Save because I think I think Go and Save is a fascinating product. But let's hear you describe it in your own words. You know, what what does it do? Who are your customers? And and why do you think that this is like a revolutionary idea? Okay. So to understand Go and Save, right? You have to think it as a personal assistant for independent workers, right? So if you if you think about if you're a regular employee or if you're like a working in consultant, stuff like that, like and you have some sort of education, you usually have the tools to do your work, right? You do know how to manage your bank account. You do know how to manage your time most of the times. You have tools, email, calendars, right? If you're part of a company, you have HR, right? And all of these. But if you're a gig worker, especially one of those who is doing project-based work, which is basically delivering food, delivering people, or delivering goods, right? You don't have access to that, right? You are by, by your own, with your phone, probably with a bike, a motorcycle in the best case, or a car, right? And you have to do the best of your time in order to make your ends meet. Right? That's basically how it works. Yeah. So we came here. As a, as a solution, so you have everything in one hand, you just connect the accounts or the platform that you are working with, you can manage your finance, you can understand how you plan your day better to make the most of your of your hours, you can have access to a community of other drivers who can give you tips, uh, peers who are happy to share about their experiences, and at the same time, you have access to a marketplace, or let's call it a marketplace of opportunities and benefits, in which you can find discounts as a gig worker as a gig driver, to save money in the expenses that you have every day. I hope That's, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think gig workers are such a unique unique segment, and I think our listeners probably know why I'm so excited about this product, um, Garrett, this, this company, given um, my previous experience running driver lending at Grab. But it's true, like gig workers don't have the same benefits, don't have the same resources as any salaried employee. And so to create something that really serves them in a meaningful way is, I think, very unique. And there's a clear value proposition. But I guess, Maria, my question is like, why did you decide to focus on gig workers? How did you know that like this was a problem for them? Okay, so after digging deeper into the gig economy, that's something that I, that I found that I, that I thought was very pretty interesting and like eye-opener for me. And is that there is an overlap, like pretty strong overlap between independent workers, right? Or informal workers, if you want to call it as, as well like that, and financial exclude population, and at the same time, poverty, right? So basically what we are saying here is that it's very likely that someone who is working as a delivery driver, probably not the case of Singapore or some countries in Europe, it's someone who is excluded from financial services, meaning that they don't use financial services. They, they do have accounts and so that, but they don't use financial services, right? They are not users. In their daily life, finances are not present. And then at the same time, they're usually part of the lowest part of the pyramid, of the income pyramid, right? Meaning that probably their income is maybe 30% below per capita GDP in a country, right? And more, moreover, something that they also face at the same time is that even though they have this income, right, as like side gigs, right, working in part-time jobs and all of that, they usually spend about 50% of what they're making to do their job, right? So the disposable income is very, very stretched, right? Like ends meet is, is, is basically what they are trying to do. So so yeah, I think it's, it's a population that it's, it's actually a lot of people around the world, right? Uh, it's like usually if you if you see some stats, like half of the of the population, the, the, the workforce of the countries is usually either independent or informal, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely a lot of people more in developing countries. In developing countries, this goes up to 79%, which is very, very high. And, you know, all of that, all that comes with informality, right? It's like a lack of support, right? Like a lack of a, a, like a, a, a net, right? To Yeah, like, like have some sort of support if they face an issue. Right? So that's why I'm really, really intrigued by this audience. 
Got it. And and I think the like what makes Go and Save unique is not necessarily saying here we're giving you job opportunities. It's not necessarily saying here we're going to give you extra financial services to kind of like supplement your income. It's really getting to the root of the problem, which is that, you know, gig workers or informal workers just want to make more money. And I think figures out how to smooth out their income in a really unique way. Can you can you talk a little bit, Maria, about how the product itself works and I guess how you how you're able to offer this product that effectively like increases gig workers earnings quite significantly. I think uh, the the number that I, that you shared with me was 35%. Your gig workers saw that you're working with have seen a 35% increase in their earnings by using the go and save product. Can you just tell us how go and save is able to do that? And I guess from a driver perspective, like just in more, maybe a tactical way, like how they're, how they're engaging with the product and actually seeing those gains in terms of income. Yes. So, so let me, let me uh, give you a bit of detail here. So something that, uh, that probably we do know, but we don't realize as users of the platforms is this thing called dynamic pricing, right? So usually when you're about to order a, a, a Uber, a Grab, right? Usually what you do is you check the rate, right? And usually the rate is different between peak hours, right? Versus non-peak hours, right? So what this means for the driver or the rider is that each hour is being paid differently, right? And it's not, it's not always about peak hours for them because the reason why they do gig work with platforms or gig driving with platforms, the reasons are always different, right? So for example, they want to take care of their elders or for example, they just have to take care of their kids or this is what they want they, they can do because of their uh, learning, because their skills, right? So they usually have different schedules for doing their job, right? So it's very hard for them to say, oh, okay, I'm going to work every day at night because I can do it so I can make the most of, 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 the, of the money because that's peak hour, right? And it's not always the case for all the zones, right? All the zones are different, right? For example, more residential zones are different to more work work uh, zones or uh, business uh, central areas. So there are a lot of dynamics there. So if you're a driver and you have your phone and you have to start working, you're like, what am I going to do today, right? So what we do, right, it's like, a, it's, it's, it's like we do is, okay, connect your data. Share with us your previous work, right? Pretty easy. Let's say your hours of work. And we take that data and we understand what are your most effective hours by, mm -hmm. for making money, right? And we take that, we extrapolate it, and we give them a very uh, accurate and like hourly schedule so they can follow that and they can focus on making the most in the time that they are actually making more money right to work more on those on those hours and then to be more mindful about not working in other hours right so they can be a bit more structured and organized right that way as honestly as simple as that they can make up to 35% more because they are losing many opportunities or this like a, a, a opportunity cost because it's honestly it's hard to understand the models of the different platforms right so they received advice from a friend. They, I don't know, they read something on the news and they just try to figure out this, right? And then they do it wrong. And that day they don't have the results that they were expecting. So the next day they don't want to work, right? So they try to find something else. And at the end of the week, their income is decreased maybe by 50%, 60%. And worst, worst thing is that they really needed that money to live, right? So they have to find something else. And they stop doing the, the the delivery work, for example. So that's kind of like a, 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 a use case, but it's usually how, it, how our application works. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're effectively, I don't know if you're using AI for this, but you're effectively kind of like backing out the pricing algorithms for a lot of these platforms, you know, that are offering employment to gig workers. But you're also in a large way benefiting those platforms because you're able to like reduce attrition. That's like always one of the biggest problems for for these gig platforms is that you know they they can't lose drivers because you know they that's that's one side of their platform that they need to survive and so if you're basically able to offer this benefit to drivers but then also you know tell these platforms hey you're actually I'm actually reducing your attrition of of drivers because we're creating a better experience you know you're it, it's sort of like a win 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 <laughs> scenario. 
I guess, Maria, it sort of begs the question, like, how are you engaging with the platforms? Like, you know, are they, are you working directly with them? Are they sort of not involved in this process at all? Is it something in the middle? Like, what does the engagement with the platforms look like? Okay, so let's say that we have two models, right? The direct and the indirect, right? So usually the direct one is, so we we, we are uh, in conversations with different platforms that they will like to have our technology available for their drivers as an sponsored uh, by them. So their drivers can have like a special access to special features, access to special benefits coming from the platform that they are working with. And we also share like the, and monitor these drivers like one-to-one. So we help them by one-to-one cases to increase the orders that they are completing. This is basically, we help them to increase their productivity, which at the same time, they're happier, right? Because you can give them many perks, but the best perk you can offer them definitely is making more money, right? And and doing the best of, of their time. So that's one approach. We call it uh, our uh, work, uh, work engagement tool, right? And that's kind of like a under uh, license uh, for the company. So they basically pay a certain amount per user. So that's one way. The other way, which is more an indirect connection, are actually the drivers who access to our platform by themselves, to our app. So they just go to Savert, uh, that app, and there they do the login. And then once they do the login, they connect the account that they are working with. So they use their own credentials to enable the connection. If they don't want, they don't need to connect the data. This is like if they really want to receive the, the, the recommendations, they can do it. Otherwise, they can have access to the hub, which is the community, and they can access to the opportunities and discounts as well. But that's usually what we allow them to do. And that way, right, they can receive our recommendations. And we are kind of like in the in the direct model, we're helping the platforms, right, with data and kind of like being in the middle, right, supporting them as, think of as our, like the HR department, right, but using software. And then in the other side, we are being hired, hired as HR by the writers, right? So you can put it this way as well. Uh, yeah, and that's usually how, how it works with the with the two models. Of course, we need to make money. So one of our our um, other streams, which is on 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 demand basis, usually we we do it is we create some mobility reports, right? So we create mobility reports in order to help the industry. I mean, something that we are discovering and it, and it's pretty interesting is like many industries needing this kind of data, right? So if you think about electric vehicles, right? So definitely in order to have electric vehicles, you need to think like where to put the charges, stuff like that. So this data is kind of interesting. At the same time, if you think about like, a, for example, real estate, right? Like what's happening in the city, right? Like the day-to-day, because this is basically uh, live data, right? So that's kind of like another use case. Autonomous cars as well, right? So you need to know how's the dynamic in the streets and they definitely have like... This, this data is comes from the streets and is created every day and we're kind of like capturing all of that in, in one place. So that's also also something that, that we are doing because one of the, of, the, of the most important things of our business model is like, we don't make money from the riders directly, right? They don't pay us, this is free for them. And we hope we can keep it like that. And then we we are seeing how we can monetize from our stakeholders uh, or, or yeah, stakeholders in the in the industry. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So Maria, that's pretty amazing that it's free for the drivers. Um, and yet they're the ones that are benefiting so much from the product. It sounds like the revenue model then is sort of like a SaaS model with some of the ride hailing platforms to be able to provide some of these, some of the data and the benefits. And then also, you know, basically creating these like aggregate industry reports that can be used by third parties. Is that, is that right? Or there, am I missing anything on like how, how go and save makes money? Yeah, that those those are uh, two of the of the main revenue streams. We are exploring a third one, which I didn't share, which is basically with the products like or benefits, uh, opportunities that we are offering the platform. We are kind of doing like a, having a commission, right? So it could be like through a pay per click, right, or pay per uh, user acquired or action, and that's something that is we have some traction there as well. So yeah, it's quite quite interesting to see how we can uh, kind of like have a, a revenue share in all of this. Yeah, nice, nice. Sounds like it sounds like a really interesting model. And I think, as you say, like there's nobody else that's really capturing this data, kind of this like gig 
data across the different the different platforms. Everybody's so like guarded about their own data because obviously that is a source of their competitive advantage. But I think what you're seeing is there are so many other players who could use that information in a productive way that kind of opening it up in a, in a sort of anonymized industry aggregated way can actually be, be super beneficial. One other thing, Maria, is, I mean, you mentioned that like I mean, you're based here in Singapore. You're actually based just down the street from me, which is fun. <laughs> um, so that's, but you said that like Singapore, you know, is is not necessarily a market where drivers need to increase their income. It's more like a developed market. So how are you thinking about your geographic scope for Go and Save? And then you had actually mentioned earlier, you know, about potentially bringing this to Latin America, other emerging markets. And how are you thinking about the geographic scope and which markets make the most sense for a product like the Sabre app and go and save? Yes, yes. So let, let's just start with Southeast Asia because Latin America is a long way to go. But, <laughs> but yeah, if, if we start with, 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 the, with the six countries here, right? So definitely Singapore, we take it as a test bed, right? So we are getting many insights from here, like learning the product Usually all the stakeholders are here, right? If you want to even negotiate uh, here in the region, there are actually many, many stakeholders here in Singapore. So I think it's a it's a very important uh, country for us, right? But when it comes about like the markets, so we are starting at the Philippines, right? We already have some footprint in Malaysia, but we are definitely targeting, targeting Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, and after that, uh, Vietnam or Thailand, either of, of both in, in, in different order. But that's kind of like our roadmap. So what we have seen is that in the uh, Philippines, right, this market is super vibrant. You can, uh, what we are seeing is like about 70% of the population uh, it's doing, let's say, some sort of uh, independent work, right, which is uh, pretty interesting for us. And we are also seeing how we can expand, you know, like to other verticals, because we are seeing that that is going beyond delivery drivers, right? Like how we can also help other independent workers who are doing what we call location-based work can be like taking care of their elders. It can be working uh, part-time in a, in a restaurant, like for the food and beverage industry, right? So all of them who are engaging on-demand work, right? Usually working using technology. So that's a very vibrant market in the Philippines and in Indonesia as well. Right. So if you think about like uh, the and, it, and it's and it's interesting because this phenomenon with the two wheels vehicles, right, the motorcycles, right, since it's so present here, everyone kind of like ha- can have access to a motorcycle, right, or two wheels vehicle to work, right. So that's something that that we are seeing. And then if you think about the trends after COVID in terms of e-commerce, last mile delivery, right. This is growing and growing and growing. So, so the 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 trend that we are seeing is that definitely we're going to have like uh, in Southeast Asia a lot of work to do because more and more people are going to do this job, right? And if we manage to engage them and if we manage to help them to uh, kind of like do their work better independently of the vertical that they are doing to manage their finances and at the same time help them to save in their expenses. I think we can do a pretty profitable and impactful business model there. Yeah. Absolutely. Here in Southeast Asia, initially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Maria. Um, so Maria, that's that's a really interesting point, I think, around how how go and save can sort of extend to other categories of informal workers, be they, you know, informal workers or maybe shift workers or freelance workers, even. How are you? thinking about sort of the growth of this sort of informal sector, because it's not necessarily that, you know, all of this sector is based of the pyramid. It's not necessarily that all of this um, sector, you know, needs to smooth out their income or can smooth out their income in the same way that you're proposing with Go and Save. Like, how are you thinking about this sector broadly? And do you see like different trends in the market to lead you to believe that, you know, gig workers will, you know, like take over the market. It'll be like, you know, a huge chunk of the market in a few years. How does that kind of mesh with the other sort of like worker employment models that are out there today? Yeah. So like, I think that's a that's a, a, a very interesting question. So let me try to, to, to give you an answer from a different perspectives. So if you think about uh, like gig workers as a whole, right? 
And, and if you think about like, like this uh, uh, kind of like a statistic about like uh, informal workers, they're usually divided into groups, right? So you have like kind of like the project-based workers and then you have the location-based workers, right? Usually the project-based workers are more like remote workers using computer, right? So you can think about freelancers, photographers, designers, web developers, right? So I think it's also a bit of mixed with uh, kind of like the uh, nomads, right? Trend mm -hmm. that we're having these days, yeah. like working remotely from everywhere. And like being being very honest, they don't have maybe ends meet uh, challenges, right? But they do definitely have a, very, a, a lot of challenges managing their money, which is which is something that I think uh, in terms of like uh, financial literacy, right? Like I think like everyone everyone uh, has it. Like if you think about uh, actually people who have unemployment, they like around eighty percent of them lived uh, by paycheck, which is kind of yep. like what, right? So, right? So 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 it's it's it's, it's a phenomenon that I don't think is 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 very uh, is very far for this. Like, let's say like project-based freelancers of gig workers, right? So I have seen many solutions out there to kind of like help them, like from even from the uh, kind of like uh, collection of payments perspective, right? Many products, fintech products are there. So you can pay by using Stripe, you can pay by using WISE. So the, all of those tools are actually helping them to kind of like put their finances in one place, right? At the same time, many of those players are kind of like offering them debit cards, credit cards, so they can buy, they can have access to some, some sort of uh, working capital as well, right? So they need to buy a camera, they need to improve, as a, for example, influencers, they need to improve their uh, studio, lights, mics, all of that, right? So I think that that's something that, in my opinion, it's, it's going to grow, it's going to keep growing in both ways, like more like, like, a, like a way of, of living and a lot of change in the, in the way of working, because many, I think that mostly younger generations, they're kind of like less attached to go to an office or have like a, a 20, like a seven days, uh, uh, sorry, five days or well, seven days, sometimes six days work, right? <laughs> yeah. From, uh, you don't know, like eight, eight to five or other jobs like later. So so I think this this is definitely going to, to happen. Also, the company is kind of like trying to hire less fixed resources to kind of like keep their 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 pockets on the cash flow healthy. So yeah, I think that's kind of like a, if you if you think it over that side, I think that's gonna keep growing. But I, I do believe that there are many players looking into this, if I had to be honest. Many, many players. Well no, I mean it sounds like your opinion, Maria, is that a lot of these traditional like salaried workers or employers even will increasingly transition their hourly or salaried workers to gig workers, right? They'll increasingly start sort of pushing them into this category where as an employer, they're almost like less responsible for their workers. And that's a place where it also sounds like you're saying there's a lot of opportunity for innovation from the private sector. Again, obviously go and save is so one, I mean, I guess I want to make sure you agree with that, with that premise. And if so, like go and save is already offering the ability to earn more money just through, through kind of like changing hours or changing locations of gig workers, but is go and save like thinking about offering any of these other services, especially financial services for gig workers that, you know, maybe em employers no longer want to provide. Is there anything else that the fintech industry should be thinking about in terms of serving these workers that, you know, ultimately, you know, may be increasingly underserved because they're changing status from like salaried to gig or consultant or freelancer? What do you think? No, I think I think that there's there's definitely a, a huge opportunity. So so if you take it from the perspective of those, let's say high income gig workers, right? Mm -hmm. There are many many products that, and and I think I think from the private sector, especially talking about the financial industry, is this change of mindset about how you approved a loan, for example, right? It's really working on changing the. Um, metrics or changing your your underwriting processes and really working on kind of like extending right your analysis so you can reach this audience because what i think like ha happened for the for the couple of years is that definitely banks right or financial institutions are trying to lower down a bit their like a uh, minimum requirements 
So they have, for example, clients from A to E, right? And then they're trying to go a bit down, right? So they can get into this new market segment, right? By allowing others to access money. But I think they're doing that in the traditional way, which is show me your income, show me your bills, right? I'm going to talk with your employee, right? So I make sure that you're making money. I'm going to check your income versus your expenses, blah, 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 right? Like all, all the, the story that we already know. But they're not, in my opinion, they're not taking other approaches. Like, for example, alternative data, right? How they can improve their scoring, how they can complement their analysis, how they can approach the, uh, these by sectors as well, right? Because usually they think the person as, as just one person who is asking for a loan, for example, and they're not thinking, okay, the needs of the gig workers are different to the needs of the employee and the inside the employee have different categories. Inside the gig workers, you have different categories and try to kind of like come up with, with new solutions here. This being said, right, I still believe that definitely the target audience that we have right now, like, which is the other side of the coin, right, in the in the economy, those who are doing location-based work, they're definitely, definitely an audience that I think, like, uh, in terms of finance, you need to be more careful about as well, right? Because the it's not just about giving them access to money, right? It's, it's about really tailoring the products so the products are helping them to make more money, right? Not to spend more money, which is usually the case, right? Buy now, pay later, and those kind of things, which is kind of like a, a, a illusion that you are creating in, in this kind of, of audience. And that's when the system fails and say, oh, we, you see, we open the, the gate a bit, we try to allocate more loans, and now we have a higher delinquency rate, right? Right. Which is, I think, wrong from, from the beginning in the approach, right? right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I hear you. It's um, there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a really big way to like mess this up, and that could lead to actually continuing underserving the segment, or worse, like you know, creating more of a disparity in in how these gig workers are served. So totally hear you. One more question on on um, like gig workers, and I have to ask this question because all over the world we are seeing that regulators want to get involved especially, you know, around the status. What is the employment status of gig workers? Um, we've seen in the U.S. that like, you know, in California, gig workers are actually now considered employees. Uber drivers are now considered employees. And, you know, you could say that if you, are you really a gig worker or a freelancer if like 100% of your income comes from one gig platform? From your perspective, like, you know, what should regulators be thinking about as they think about, or as they as they make rules around, you know, the status of gig workers and the benefits they're entitled to? Like, do you have, for any regulators who are listening, do you have any advice for them? I think I think this, this one is, a, is always a, a really uh, tough question because, you know, I, it's very hard to, to, to take a position here, right? I can share a couple, like, maybe uh, examples, two examples from both sides that I, I, I can help us to, to think through. So... In this, in the case, for example, of Spain, right? They managed to put this regulation uh, a bit of long time ago. Maybe it's one of the oldest regulation for gig workers. And now, for example, delivery drivers working with Global, for example, right? They're actually kind of like engaged as employees, right? Mm -hmm. So what I have, what what I have read, read, and kind of like having conversations with with um, co-workers, what we are seeing is that, for example, in Spain. The, the drivers who are being employee right by the platform actually renting the account to immigrants right oh, and they're for example yeah that's kind of, so they're giving to the to the immigrant i don't know 40% of the pay and they're keeping the 60% because they own the account right so that's kind of like a, if you're a regulator what i'm trying to say here is are you really hearing the needs of the people here are you really understanding the behavior of the of the citizens in this regard because thinking through about this is like many gig workers or many like like uh, of the of the of the of the people who is engaged in this kind of work is also doing this because they want the flexibility right so you have like two sides right you have the, the ones that definitely didn't make it for a formal job and they have to do this but you also have a, a big chunk right is doing this because they want yeah um so 
so it's kind of like they want the best of the of the gig work and the best of the benefits from a formal job, right? Yeah. And from a platform perspective, right? And now having the head of the platforms, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because if, if I if you if you if you pay someone to do 10 writer 10, 10 orders per day, a fixed price, this very hard or very, very likely that they're not going to show up, right? right? And they're not going to complete the work and they're going to have to fire them and find someone else. So it's tricky. I think it's tricky. And in the other, in the, in the, in the, in the other side of the question, thinking about like, for example, uh, I would like to give an example, like, like in, in Colombia, right? So in Colombia, we had this, in, in Latin America, we had this very big displacement from people from Venezuela, right? Like, Two million Venezuelans went to Colombia. Like one million is the official uh, uh, number, but then, it's like the non-official is like a two million. They are right to 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 Colombia, and that was the boom of Rappi, which is one of the biggest platforms over there. And Uber was also entering into the country, and there were many many immigrants taking those jobs. And sometimes when I was saying like the kid who was delivering the food for me, I was saying that kid could be like a I don't know, a criminal, right? Because he's he instead of, of being in the streets with kind of like bad, uh, bad friends, you know, gangs, all of that, he's taking his bike and making some money for living in an honest way. So if you if you if you automatically ask a country like Colombia to kind of like legalize that kind of work, the system is not gonna be able to do it, right? So many of those kids, many of those immigrants are not gonna have the chance. To do this, so I I don't have a position honestly. I think it's very hard to have a position. I think it's different for each country, it's different for each uh, culture. But definitely, if you're a regulator, I think the position is like to really understand very well the needs of the citizens of that specific country or state, right? Maria, thank you so much. That was such a that was such a great like nuanced answer, and I think you're right. Like you really have to understand regulators and the and the platforms have to really understand like who their drivers are, who their gig workers are to be able to serve them appropriately. I know we're just about out of time. I have one more question if you have two minutes, but if you need to run. Yeah, I, yeah? I do have the time to work. Yeah. <laughs> one last question, Maria. And you, and you sort of alluded to this just now, but and and in talking about Go and Save's like potential growth plans, but we are seeing a lot of, especially growth stage tech companies, Explore opportunities, not just in new countries like in Southeast Asia, but also explore new regions. So we've seen like the likes of C Group, Tunes, some of, you know, these large tech companies looking at other emerging markets, um, MENA, Latin America for expansion. So for anyone who's interested in that kind of expansion work, do you, what are like maybe the top one or two biggest similarities and differences you see between Southeast Asia and Latin America, especially when it comes to inclusive financial services? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so I think that, um, so let, let, let's try to start with Latin America and Southeast Asia. So I think like the, the initially in Latin America, you have a very high penetration of fintech products, right? So I think that is, is part because of the regulation is part of the dynamics of the, of, of the market, the kind of like a investment, right? That, it's helping to kind of like uh, create this this environment to have many kind of like fintech products offering loans, offering insurance, like in the insurance insurance tech industry, payments for sure, right? Because the kind of like and actually more after the pandemic, it was like an accelerated process of the adoption of digital technologies, right? So this this huge kind of like a uh, penetration of of phones. Is basically saying, like, for example, in the case of Latin America, like each user, each, each person who has a, a, a phone can also have financial services, right? So if you take it from there and then you compare it with, with uh, Southeast Asia, I think like in, in and from reports that I have seen the, after the pandemic as well, this has been also the similar trend, right? Like a huge, huge adoption of phones. I think like Southeast Asia has an, an advantage and is that there are already the examples of, of, of Latin America, for example, in emerging markets, but also the phones. I think like the, the access to different kind of phones, like um, uh, uh, hardware-wise, right? It's pretty interesting. And the tech savviness of the users for using phones, right? Which is, I think, is, is higher. And then, and then if you compare Latin America with, with, uh, with Asia, also in Latin America, the population is a bit older. 
done here in Southeast Asia. So then you also have this tech savviness from younger people who is excluded from financial services, right? Or is not using financial... I, I would like to use more using financial services because nowadays almost everyone has a bank account. But then the the, the use of them, right? So it's higher in Latin America. And I think we had this conversation uh, about Mina and then it's kind of like the... Uh, it's, it's totally a different context, right? In, in my opinion, in which you have a lot of innovation. It's incredible, right? The innovation that you have there. But definitely the use of the phones is different. Uh, in my opinion, they have been using the phones using USSD technologies, a lot of text messaging involved in there because of the uh, kind of like penetration of phones and cost of uh, smartphones over there and also the tech savviness of, of the population. And then we're talking about this, right, like the spread of them along villages as well, right? When, when it comes about like uh, low income uh, population in rural areas or sometimes also in, in nearby cities. So I think like their approach to technology is, is different and it's also changing the dynamics, right? Having players like Empeza, having a lot of like, it's not about fintechs innovating, there are telcos, the ones who are really taking the lead there, right? Which is very interesting and it's very different to, for example, what is happening in Latin America, which is more like entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. Who had a bit of knowledge on the, on, the, on the financial sector who are kind of like leading this with the help and kind of like a complicity from the government, right? Yeah, so I think that's my answer is all related with the use of the technology, the penetration of the phones and, and the coverage. I think that's kind of like uh, the key from the three different markets. Thank you so much, Maria. Um, I didn't mean for us to go into Mina, but um, I appreciate the perspective there. I feel like I've come out of like a global political economy class. I should call you <laughs> Professor Maria. But Maria, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, this has been a really fun and fascinating conversation. Thank you for, for joining us here in the green room. No, thanks. Thank you for, for having me. It was a complete pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Maria. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you leaving us five stars, a review, and passing us along to your friends. And if you know anyone who'd be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.